Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. And once again, back on Talking Biotech, driving innovation to application with communication. Uh, talking about the cool things that we can do with science and then going and doing them and talking about their relative risks and benefits. Yeah, it's a good time to be thinking about new technologies and ways in which they're coming to the fore to solve problems for people. And last week was such a cool episode with uh, discussions in papaya. Today is a little bit different. Today we're going to be talking to Dr. Amy Izoni from Michigan State University about how do you breed cherries. And tree crops are always a challenge, and you think about, and you know, maybe we don't think about it, but all of the apples, cherries, citrus, the things we find in the store that we really enjoy, that fruits that really make a difference to us, that they take decades of dedicated space, labor, um, hard science in order to generate that new variety. And you think about how long it takes to grow a tree uh, that becomes productive. Um, it really takes a while before you can do that. So people like Dr. Izoni, my hat's off to her because uh, uh, it really is amazing that you can improve something like a cherry um, even in one's lifetime. I mean, that's really an incredible undertaking. And the second part of Talking Biotech today, I answer your questions. Uh, one question in particular about glyphosate and how it's showing up in everywhere from uh, urine to breast milk to... Uh, space station I mean, or whatever um, <laughs> it's kind of showing up everywhere uh, 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 allegedly and so how do we really need to think about those reports and is there some you know ability to detect it and i talk a little bit about that so check that out as well in part two so to part one we go to dr amy izoni talking about cherry breeding we're going to talk about cherries and cherries in their breeding and their domestication and how this uh, really exciting fruit and how this fruit we all really enjoy uh, came to be. And with us today we have on the line from East Lansing, Michigan and Michigan State University, uh, Dr. Amy Izoni. She's in the horticulture department. Uh, welcome, Amy. Nice to talk to you. Hi, Kevin. 
And Amy and I are we're kind of old friends. That's uh, we've worked together on uh, a number of uh, initiatives and projects through the years, and it, it's very much a pleasure to have you here today to talk to us. Thank you. Um, so I guess we can really start in the beginning. Uh, when people talk about cherries, we have such a narrow view of what a cherry is, and uh, relative to you know what you what you know about this. So could you tell us more about what really is a cherry? Well, a cherry is a fruit that is really a swelled ovary, just like a, a tomato. And what a breeder thinks of a, a cherry, you have to differentiate between sweet cherry and tart cherry. Now, the sweet cherry is the cherry you eat fresh in the supermarket, where you're used to probably either seeing some that are burgundy red or the blush color that are yellow with a red blush. That's your fresh market sweet cherry. But there's another species of cherry that's called tart cherry that is used for cooking. And they're very different because the tart cherry has twice the number of chromosomes as a sweet cherry. Yeah, you can usually, I think you can taste those extra chromosomes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Make them sour. very delicious. Um, I, so what are some of the other big differences between sweet and tart cherries? I mean, are the cherries the same size and, and, and do breeders? Well, the, the big difference is um, firmness and taste. The sweet cherries are a very firm fruit, and that's for the fresh market they can be shipped. And the tart cherries are soft and juicy, and so they cook into a pie, and they have a high acid to them. And so that's why when they're cooked for jams, they're really good. So you can sort of think of them as a sweet cherry, as a fresh market cherry, and the tart cherry as a cherry you would have in your jam, your juice, your pie. So fortunately, we've got both of them. It is nice. And they're two different species, which is really interesting. Yes. So where do they come from in time, and where where was the original, or where is the center of origin, and, and how were they domesticated by humans? Well, both tart and sweet cherry come from the Caucasus region, region in Asia. That's where they evolved. It's a similar center of origin as apples. And so what happened is that... Um, Sweet cherries from that area were spread across Europe and south into Iran, probably by birds. And the Latin name of um, sweet cherry is Prunus avium, so obviously the birds. <laughs> and so for sweet cherry, they were spread throughout Europe and they were probably domesticated more in Western Europe. Now, that's for sweet cherry. And tart cherry is a combination of two different species. One of the progenitor species is sweet cherry. But the other species is a ground cherry that is native to the Siberian steppes of Russia. And this ground cherry evolved in Russia um, as a very small tree that actually hides under the snow in the winter. And so tart cherry is created from a hybridization between sweet cherry 
and this ground cherry. And so to for set sweet cher- sour cherry to evolve, you had to have this hybridization event then followed by a domestication event probably in Eastern Europe. That's really interesting. I, so the, there actually are two different species. And when you said earlier that there are double the chromosomes, this wasn't really two that were crossing and kind of integrating or one genome together. It's, I guess what I'm asking you in, in, in a non-scientific way is, are these an allopolyploid? Are these a case where there's two resident genomes inside that one cell? Yes. Yes, the tart cherry is an allopolyploid. However, it's a promiscuous allopolyploid in that it's not reproductively isolated from sweet cherry or ground cherry, and so it keeps crossing with the other species, which makes it a little unbalanced. Oh, that's pretty cool. But as a, as a cherry breeder, is that a real advantage in terms of being able to uh, get new traits or be able to breed something really interesting? It has its pluses and minuses. The pluses are that if the sour cherry has, by the way, I'll use sour cherry and tart cherry, they mean the same thing. Um, If you cross the the sour cherry with um, those that have more sweet cherry in their genome, you have some of those great sweet cherry traits like larger size and firmness. But if you have some sour cherries that have more of the ground cherry, then you have more of the cold hardiness in the late bloom. Those are the pluses. But the negative is that you lose the fertility because the chromosomes don't align properly at meiosis. And so that translates into lower yield. Well, that's a, that is really interesting. And the big problem I think about um, you know, for you as a breeder, as somebody who's actively trying to improve these crops, is how do you uh, how do you uh, deal with something that takes years and lots of space to be able to generate the next elite cultivar? Is, is that uh, how, how does a breeder really think about that? Well, tree breeding does come with its its challenges because breeding is a numbers game. The probability of getting uh, a commercially successful variety is very low. A lot of that has to do with um, choosing the right cross. So a lot of times, time is spent making sure um, I've got the best germplasm possible to work with, and I am making the best cross so that I have a higher chance of getting good seedlings. And um, then simply trying to be as efficient selecting as possible. And this is where marker-assisted breeding can really help. Yeah, we can uh, touch on that. I'd like to still think about this idea of of actually understanding your job as a cherry breeder because I really would like people to understand that when we're breeding trees it is it is a significant investment and so how many acres of trees would you say you have to go through when you're maybe trying to select the next best variety and what other considerations are there with things like uh, incompatibility that other trees that you need to plant just for I guess if you're a breeder, you don't you, you're controlling that, I suppose. 
Um, so let's just go. Let me just ask it this way. Um, so how many acres of trees do you th- estimate you need to plant in order to come close to f- identifying a few advanced selections that could be good cultivars? I'd say about 25. It's a rare event, but um, we're making some some progress on that. Now, you mentioned self-incompatibility, so I can explain that a little bit because that is one of the major, major issues I deal with. Um, cherries evolved as natural outcrossers, just like humans, where having being heterozygous is a good thing. And what that means is the trees cannot self-pollinate. But that's a problem for... Um, an orchardist because then they have to plant a pollinator which has certain production problems and then to set the crop they have to have cross-pollination. But what happened is that uh, there are natural mutations that knocked out self-incompatibility to make new varieties compatible. And so one of the changes in domestication was from self-incompatible to compatible. One of the regions in which cherry was domesticated was Hungary. And there were local land races in that country. And people learned, the peasants learned early on how to vegetatively propagate their trees. So they would um, have many different clonal varieties of this pandy cultivar but it was self incompatible but the fruit and so the fruit set was really low all of a sudden about 200 years ago they found a pandy clone that was very very productive and what had happened was there was a mutation in this gene that controlled self incompatibility and the local peasants were the first breeders they noticed that, and they captured that, and that variety now represents 30% of the production in Hungary. So I think one of the first things you do as a breeder is you can capture on that wonderful genetic diversity that, that the peasants had found years ago, and um, you can purge those negative traits, such as self-incompatibility from your breeding program to increase your chances of finding a high-yielding selection. That's really an interesting story because it, it reminds us that a lot of the uh, breeding and, and selection that's been done, I mean, it, and how, how, when, when, when did that happen about that they were able to identify that? This happened probably in the early 1900s because when, after World War II, when the Hungarian uh, production was changed under the communist regime for um, to these big, big, big agricultural farms. The government had to come up with the varieties to put on these big communist farms, and they used this self-incompatible, self-compatible variety. So it, the mutation was found by by local people in the early 1900s, and then it it was put in mass production under the big communist farms in the 50s. And when you look at, uh, say, varieties that are available in the United States for cherry growers or North America, do they still have, do they have the same kind of 
incompatibility issues or maybe mutations in the same gene that allow them to be self-compatible? They are self-compatible, but they have different mutations that allowed this to happen. Okay, and was that because of different uh, domestication, or was that because breeders actively identified those self-compatible varieties? It was because of domestication, and what people saw was just high fruit set, high yield. Okay. What are some of the other traits that you as a breeder target, and uh, maybe some of the less obvious ones that, uh, that I've heard you discuss over the years? Right. Um, a major one, like, like all breeders, we work on disease resistance, and I can't imagine you'd interview a single breeder without them talking about that. And that's because um, plant breeders have been extremely successful um, finding resistance from wild relatives and, and moving those traits into commercial varieties. Obviously, that hasn't happened in cherry yet just because there hasn't been that, that effort and because of the time. But there are wild species that have high levels of resistance to a defoliating um, gene in cherry, a disease in cherry. And so we spend a lot of time introgressing that resistance into new cultivar candidates. Another thing is um, bloom time. Because of weather issues, uh, Michigan, which is the number one producer of tart cherries in the U.S., has lost the vast majority of its crop twice in the last 10 years. But using the, the... genetic variation present in the Russian germplasm, we have a lot of capacity to move back bloom date and simply avoid this this loss of flowers. So a big effort on that too. So maybe we could touch on both of those uh, topics. With bloom date, is it because you have a bloom that occurs and then get a freeze event once the flowers have occurred? Is that is that what's happening? Right, that's what ha- that's certainly what happens. The you know the flowers start blooming in the spring when we get an early warm up, and then if they're out there for the freeze, it doesn't take much to freeze a, a, a pistil, a flower in prunus. It takes just about twenty seven degrees. Yeah, I think I, I so I see what is more the problem because we see it down here in Florida that you have a uh, peach breeding program where you get a uh, a very sudden cold snap somewhere in November and the trees automatically think okay I've had my cold rest my winter's over they come out in a nice warm week in December and start flowering and then you hit another freeze event in January or February that kills the flowers or young fruit so is really the problem a late freeze or is the problem a warmer spring The problem is the warmer spring because if we can keep the trees from pushing out, then they can withstand the 27 degrees. If they push out, then the floral organs are out, they're exposed to the cold, and there's nothing you can do. Okay, and then the other issue you mentioned was the um, uh, disease and the introgression from wild species. So when you're doing this kind of work as a tree breeder, how long does that take? And, and you touched on the idea of molecular markers. How much does that play a role in making the process go faster? Right. It can take 
five or six generations if you're starting with a wild species that has small fruit and then you have to get back so many traits and the generation time can be about three to four years and so what molecular markers allow you to do is if you can if you know the genomic regions that contain your resistance alleles then you can tag them and know which seedlings in the next generation are likely to be resistant. Then what I can do is I can bud those onto rootstocks that induce them to flower earlier. So I can reduce the generation time, and I can afford to do that budding if I have a genetic test that tells me it's worth my investment because I know it carries a resistance allele. Yeah, that was a very good explanation of that. And so, what what is uh, so when you have a rootstock that induces flowering? Are these uh, some of those engineered rootstocks that have, say, the FT gene, or are these just uh, naturally occurring rootstocks that tend to facilitate earlier flowering? They're naturally occurring rootstocks that facilitate earlier flowering, such as the um, apple rootstocks. They also induce dwarfing. Okay, and we did also, you know, you mentioned Apple now and you mentioned Apple earlier. What are some of the, and we, I'm surprised we didn't touch on this earlier, what are some of the relatives of uh, cherry and how does it fit into the bigger picture in terms of its relationship with other important fruit crops? Uh, cherry is in the botanical family Rosaceae. And the most recognizable members of that are are apple, the other prunus, the peaches, the plums, the apricots, the strawberry, and um, the pear, and then the berries, uh, the cane berries, or the uh, blackberry, raspberry, and then you've got the nut, you've got the almond. Yeah, and uh, and, uh, and and people are always surprised when you talk about the diversity in the family, and and even roses too. What people are so so curious about, you know, that you, here you have uh, all these different foods that we eat, all these important fruits that are all related uh, to uh, the rose family, and so that's I know that's a place where we've had lots of conversations over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what are the uh, current initiatives that are going on? I know you're involved with something called Rose Breed. And mm-hmm. what is that? And um, could you tell us a little bit about what happens in that program? Rose Breed is called Rose Breed because it's a project with the Rosaceae family. And it's a project dedicated to the genetic improvement of rosaceous crops by targeted applications of genomic knowledge. And our goal is to develop tools to accelerate and increase the efficiency of breeding programs. Specifically, um, breeders know, and maybe consumers even know, that the perfect cultivar of apple, peach, cherry, strawberry, rose, and other crops um, that meets consumers' expectations for flavor, aroma, and texture, and also meets industry needs for disease resistance and productivity, is really elusive. It's, those cultivars don't yet exist. We don't have the perfect cultivars, but we have the genetic diversity to get there. 
So what Rosebreed is doing is is using genomics knowledge and to develop tools that will help breeders get there more efficiently and effectively. We have discussed before that there really are not many biotechnology applications in things like cherries. And uh, why is that? And then what are some of the potential places where a biotech approach could remedy a particular problem? Right. Well, cherry is a minor crop, and there, there's not uh, obviously the effort on it. And, and it is a rather intractable um, crop to work with as far as regenerating from undifferentiated tissue. One area where a biotech um, has been useful, which is not in cherry, would be an apple, would be in in reducing the generation time for rapid cycling. So you have the ability to rapidly cycle in your introgression effort, but yet the transgene is not in your final variety. It's just been in in your back cross parent to help you rapid cycle. So that's one potential area that um, probably has the most immediate application. Yeah, and let me clear that up just for people who are not really familiar with how this works. Is essentially you can genetically engineer a rootstock, so the just basically the root system, with a gene that induces flowering in the uh, scion or the part that's above the ground. And so you can graft on just any plant that's not genetically engineered, graft it on, and now have it flower. And why that's exciting is because, especially for a breeder, is that traditionally you've been waiting three, four, five, six, maybe longer years in order to get a plant to flower to make the cross you want to make. And by having these inductive rootstocks, these rootstocks that, that because they're genetically engineered, force the scion to flower, it allows the breeder to make those crosses earlier and the materials are not genetically engineered they're only getting the advantage of the genetic engineering that is imparted from that rootstock so it's really cool technology and i could see how as a breeder that would be pretty exciting actually kevin um i was talking about um we've got rootstocks that that do that i was talking about the um having the early flowering in the back cross plant oh okay Maybe I didn't make myself clear okay, where yeah. you have the early flowering in the plant and then that's segregated out. I see. So so, so this is a little different. This is we're, They're doing this in citrus too, that you have right. an entire transgenic plant. So right. let, me, let me distill this for the, for the listener, that you right. have an, a cr- plant that is um, genetically engineered with this gene. You make your cross to incorporate that gene. You make other crosses and then essentially cross that gene back out later on. And it allows you to uh, make the crosses you need to do to incorporate a uh, specific marker or maybe a disease resistance gene and then essentially eliminate the transgene by um, genet- by by traditional breeding, um, maybe that wasn't as clear as I would have liked it to be. Maybe I'll have to put a figure up on the on the website. But uh. yes, um, and and the application is for pyrimidine alleles for disease resistance. There okay. are just so many alleles for disease resistance that are known in apple right now, 
And just the simple math of getting all those into one selection is rather daunting. Yes. So that so once again, another nice application of molecular markers, which are just the little signatures in the genome that tend to associate with uh, with disease resistance or any trait of interest. Where do traits like uh, important traits like fruit size come from, and how are those controlled? Is that in domestication when you're breeding for disease resistance with the wild relatives? Many times the wild relatives have small fruit. And one of the major changes with domestication is large fruit. Humans wanted large fruit. And in Cherry, we did some work years ago where in collaboration with Esther Vandernap, we found a, a major gene for fruit size in Cherry. We can use that knowledge to help us get back large fruit in a commercial variety faster because we know this major gene that uh, is a domestication signature for large fruit size. And interestingly, this is a cell number regulator gene, which is the same gene family as a fruit size domestication gene in tomato. Yeah, really cool. And so here's two different species that each have um, larger fruit based upon mutations in the same gene that clearly came from two very different domestication events or, or, or selection events any, anyway, um, which is really an interesting testament. We see it with these kind of parallel selections happening for the same genes in very different populations uh, because people all find some value of the same trait. Yeah, it's really cool. You know what? What is the future of cherry, and what what do you see as? Uh, do you see that this is a expanding high value crop that maybe more growers are gaining interest in, or uh, and and will breeders help to uh, help to expand the acceptance and uh, cultivation of this crop? There's a lot of effort on breeding sweet cherries with improved eating quality. And hopefully the consumers will see a, a big difference there. Um, with just a longer range of fresh fruit on the market and consistently high quality, there's a lot of effort on that. With tart cherry, um, the consumers only know it as a processed cherry. It's like the consumers just knowing Red Delicious as an apple. But there's a lot of taste differences in tart cherry and so one thing I'm hoping the consumers will will have is an opportunity to eat some tart cherries fresh and enjoy the fruit fresh and there are some varieties that allow you to do that such as balaton so I think there's a lot of potential for consumers to have more different cherries to eat in the future because What's currently in the supermarket is just the tip of the iceberg. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Izoni, for uh, spending the time with us today on Talking Biotech. It's always wonderful to talk to experts about where our food comes from in time and space. And thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you also. And that was uh, Dr. Amy Izoni, who is a professor in the horticulture department at Michigan State University, talking to us about cherry domestication. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. 
Now, since the reboot only a few weeks ago, we've seen tremendous increases in the number of listeners, and we thank you for that. You're obviously telling friends and family, retweeting episodes, and sharing them in social media space. That's great, because you are the amplifier to our little microphone. Now, if you have questions you'd like to hear answered here, send a tweet to at TalkingBiotech, or send an email to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. And remember, this pirate ship is 100% supported personally by Kevin Fulton, and no outside contributions are ever accepted. I always tell him it's a bonehead move, because if everybody sent him a penny, he could cover his annual costs in a week or two. That means lots of folks are downloading the production and enjoying the content. The amazing stories of plant biology and new technology open our eyes to where our food comes from, as well as where it can go. As moving innovation to application requires communication. We now return to Talking Biotech, already in progress. That's right, Talking Biotech already in progress, and wonderful to be back doing this on uh, Talking Biotech Podcast every week. Um, so, today's email, I'm going back to some emails that uh, are kind of redundant, and I apologize for not hitting all of them. Um, I've answered all of you individually, but let me talk about one important one that we're seeing a little bit of a trend here. And maybe we can kill a thousand birds with one stone. Uh, dear Kevin, I've been reading online about Roundup showing up in people's urine, in beer, in infant feeding tubes, and in breast milk. A lot of this comes from Germany where they do not have GMOs, so why do we keep reading these stories? Is glyphosate really everywhere? Thanks for your podcast. We listen to it on the weekend when we walk our dogs. Uh, Andy, A-N-D-E-E, Brookings, South Dakota. So, Andy, this is a tricky one to answer because it is conceivable that you could detect very small amounts. So, with the numbers that they're reporting in parts per billion are entirely um, detectable, and I think detectable very reliably. We have very good instrumentation and very good assays that allow us to detect very small amounts of a given compound. The part where it becomes problematic is the type of test that is typically being done. Now, there are advanced technologies like LCMS and other separations technologies that require, um, you know, half-million-dollar machines, and, and we have that stuff. We use it all the time, you know, people we work with. And actually, in a few weeks, Dr. Shelley McGuire will be on the podcast, and she's measured glyphosate and actually published a recent protocol on how to do that. But uh, a lot of this comes from, I think... Uh, they don't really say, now, sometimes they do, but uh, a kit that's available online that you can buy. And the kit uses what's called an ELISA test, which stands for uh, Enzyme-Linked Immunosorbent Assay, ELISA. And ELISA is a, uh, think of it this way, that it's a way of adding a compound. And if there's something that uh, binds to an antibody, so very specific lock and key mechanism, then you get a tremendous amplification of signals. So one little bit in can give you very strong amplification and generation of a signal, which gives, which is good because it's extremely sensitive. The problem with ELISA t- 
type uh, technology is that it also can find false positives. So if something else cross-reacts with that enzyme, you can also generate a positive interaction. So the power of an ELISA is dependent upon a couple things. One of them is the um, uh, standard curve, meaning measuring with a series, an increasing series of amount that you spike in, understanding where the threshold of detection really is, as well as like a linear range where what you put in is the signal you get out, versus where you saturate the signal, uh, the capacity of the kit to generate additional signals. So you can kind of see that S shape in your in your head, that there's a place where you can detect it, a place where it's detected reliably and a level where it's always detected no matter how much you put in. So the first thing to do is to establish those boundaries. The next big trick in an ELISA is to check for that cross-reactivity, the negative controls. Um, and that's the thing that always concerns me with this particular set of reports. A good example is the one on beer where we didn't see any example or any evidence of a negative control, which would be a beer where you didn't detect it. So they're detecting detecting it in anything they put in, which says maybe it's something in barley or something in hops that is cross-reacting with the kit. That's really the mundane explanation. Of course, it could be glyphosate, and in which case you would have to have something that, you know, some sort of uh, some beer that was made... Uh, I don't know, just show me one that doesn't cross-react. Um, or better yet, show me several that don't cross-react. Um, and this goes into the idea that when we're making extraordinary claims about science, we really need strong evidence. And I think uh, that the rigor in these experiments is generally pretty low. They don't talk about the number of replicates, and they don't show experimental error in the detection. So they say, well, we have 29 parts per billion did they get zero, 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 and uh, 98 parts per billion? And was that 98 a fluke? So it, it's really important to understand the, the statistics and what are the numbers that went into that final reported number. And these are not in peer-reviewed literature. That's the other important consideration. Probably should be the first consideration. They're not peer-reviewed, and they're not reproducible. So right there it gives us a, a lot of um, pause in interpreting these data. That doesn't mean you should categorically dismiss them. Um, it's very important for us to consider um, alternative ideas and uh, unpopular ideas especially because if this was true it would be something for us to think about and not that think about very much. The numbers they're reporting are thousands of times below physiologically relevant thresholds. So could it actually be there? And the answer is well sure why not. Um, you say that there's no GMOs in Germany, but there's plenty of residential weeds. People are using this stuff around their house. People are using it in uh, municipal applications. So there's plenty of it around sports fields, uh, city hall, things like that. And um, you also do use it in some limited capacities in the production of grain that if, um, if they're getting especially wet weather, uh, growers can treat their crop with glyphosate to get a uniform drying down before harvest. I use it as a harvest aid. And so it is used on grains and could conceivably be making its way in minuscule amounts into uh, a final product, uh, such as beer. Um, I don't necessarily understand how it could be in breast milk. It doesn't seem to be consistent with the way the chemical um, lives in the body or moves in the body or is moved out of the body. It's water-soluble. Uh, it would move uh, through urine and stools, but typically in urine, uh, it's excluded from the body very quickly. So 
Um, the claims of it being in breast milk are tenuous at best, and I, I, I don't find those particularly reliable because they were, again, published on an activist website. Um, and that really brings us to that final point. Most of this is being promoted by Zen Honeycutt moms across America who really would like to do nothing more than have our farmers lose their technology. And they do fabricate data. Um, I, I know we've personally found them uh, making up data in the stunning corn comparison a few years ago where they filled a table with information that was not even remotely biological. So you could go back, look up stunning corn comparison. You can find my analyses as well as their claims. And if you look at their claims, you can say, well, clearly these are not biologically possible data. And uh, that tells you a lot about the veracity of their particular uh, scientific ability uh, and an ability to replicate um, sound scientific outcomes. So um, that is um, really the best answer to that question, is that, yes, it's scientifically plausible. Uh, we can detect very little very easily. And um, it's possible that uh, but all of, our, all of the claims need to be reinforced predicated with excellent controls, clear evidence that we've tested and standardized the assay, and also reproducibility, particularly by third-party independent testing. So that's it for your emails this week. Thank you very much for sending, and send them anytime to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. And that brings to a close episode 27 of Talking Biotech Podcast. Our producer was me, <laughs> uh, interview guy, me, um, website guy, me. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. So thank you very much for listening. Send your questions to either Twitter at Talking Biotech or to your uh, to email at TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Thank you very much to Dr. Iazoni and... Uh, and me. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening and talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.